The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. This is a part of the scriptures that a lot of times we kind of look at verses 20, and, uh, verse 20 really. Uh, I'm crucified with Christ. Many of us have heard that verse, love that verse, know that verse. But sometimes we overlook a certain passage of this or a certain part of this in the context of it. And the climax of Paul's speech to Peter in front of them all, if you see verse 14, uh, Paul is coming, he's correcting Peter for his hypocrisy. And we talked about last week the fact that we all suffer from this thing of hypocrisy, all of us, in our lives. And we need to be corrected often by the gospel. And in verse 16, I want you to look at this. This is kind of the key verse of this section where Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And so if you look at this, justification or to be justified by faith is really central to the Christian faith. It is Paul's kind of nutshell summary of what the gospel actually is, to be justified by faith. But we often, when we talk about this, especially in the church, we assume that we and everyone else have grasped exactly what that means, justification, what it means to be justified, and what impact it will have on our lives. Number one, if you're following along to, uh, today, uh, salvation is through justification by faith. Justification by faith. That's how we're saved. We're justified by faith. And so uh, a lot of times what we'll say is we assume what people, uh, that people understand what this means. We, uh, sometimes we, we often forget to spell out uh, what we mustn't assume. But since we see here that even the apostle, uh, like Peter, needs to be reminded, needs to be explained, uh, needed to learn more about what it means to be justified, it's likely that we need that too. So I want you to look at first here uh, that we should connect really this concept of justification by faith with Paul's controversy here with Peter. Essentially, the dispute was about cleanliness. Remember, uh, Peter uh, was not sitting with the Gentiles, he was not fellowshipping with the Gentiles because some Jews showed up, and the, uh, the, the process in the Jewish faith for, being, for fellowshipping together was that everyone sitting together at the table needed to be clean. Uh, they needed to be clean in order to fellowship with each other. And what they ate was supposed to be clean. If you can remember, uh, Peter got a revelation from the Lord that the things that at one time were unclean, were now made clean through the gospel. And you know, what a picture that is of us. At, we at one time were unclean or unacceptable to fellowship with God, but now through the Lord Jesus Christ have been made acceptable for fellowship. We have been what the Bible says, we have been made clean uh, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this together, notice he says here uh, that they, they were at one time fellowshipping together, and then all of a sudden uh, these Jews show up and Peter stops fellowshipping. And essentially this dispute, again, is about cleanliness. Jews did not eat with Gentiles because they were unclean, and you had to be clean to worship God. And so just simply uh, to be justified is to be acceptable 
uh, for fellowship with God. To be justified is to be acceptable for fellowship with God. I want you to think about that this morning. Because I've been justified, I can now fellowship with God. I can spend time with God. In my life, uh, daily, I can spend time with God. Today, we've come uh, to spend time with one another as we spend time with God. But how many know that we have a daily fellowship with God because we have been justified by faith? That should change our lives, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it change your life and mine that we spend time with God every day? And the time we spend with God is not so much like when we make a declaration, God, I'm opening up your word. Uh, Devotions are important, but sometimes we have this very compartmentalized view of what it means to spend time with God. Truly, our fellowship is with God, and our fellowship with God is not supposed to stop. We're supposed to remain in continual fellowship with God for the rest of our lives as believers. In other words, because of Christ, we never are out of Jesus' presence. We are always in the presence of God through the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ is literally at the right hand of the throne of God. He is in the presence of God for us. And so our fellowship, our access to God is through Jesus And because Jesus is seated there, we are secure in his finished work and we are ever in the presence of God. I'm with you. I want to have what we would call and ask for often when we come together as a church. God, we want your presence. But the truth is, all of us, if we've been saved, are in the presence of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we make uh, our fellowship with God about what we do. We make our fellowship uh, with God about other things. To be justified is to be acceptable for fellowship with God. Why does Paul switch terms? He switches to this word, this word justification, because it has a legal reference. It, It provides a different perspective on our salvation in Christ. The opposite of clean is polluted, but cleansing isn't sufficient to convey what Christ does for us. He didn't just cleanse us from our sins. Uh, That's a wonderful truth about what happens when we come into a relationship with God. We are cleansed from our sins, but that is not all that happened. We weren't just clean from our sins. Cleanliness alone suggests that God accepts us because Christ cleaned us. And he got rid of our sinful thoughts and he got rid of our sinful habits. So we become acceptable uh, to God by actually becoming righteous in our attitudes and our actions. But justification means that in Christ, though we are actually sinners, we are not under condemnation. I want you to think about that. Though we are actually sinners, how many know this morning that even though you may have put your faith and trust in God, that actually today you are still a sinner? How many have realized that? Uh, isn't it sometimes it, 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 it causes hypocrisy in the church when we come together and pretend like none of us are sinners? You're in good company today. The one speaking to you is a sinner. I'm speaking to a crowd of sinners. But our righteousness has nothing to do with the fact that we became righteous through our works, through our actions. We didn't stop sinning, and so God accepted us. That's not what happened at all. Not This didn't even happen. He didn't clean, cleanse us from our sins, and then that is what we became now because we are clean, we're acceptable. Because what happens when we go and sin again? What happens when we... Does, does, 
does our acceptableness to God, our, 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 our right standing with God, that's why Paul changes to this legal, this legal word, justification, because he wants to declare to us something that does not change, that is unalterable with the position of the Christian in Christ. No matter what happens, because of this transaction, because of what Jesus has done, nothing can change are standing before God. Now, don't you, you say, well, this is a very Christmas message. This is the Christmas message. This is why Christ came into the world. He came into the world to take on human flesh so that he could die the death that we deserve to die in the way that we deserve to die so that we could live in the way that he intended us to live. That's exactly what the Christmas message is about. Justification means that in Christ, though we were actually sinners, we're not under condemnation. God accepts us despite our sin. That ought to cause us to worship Him. God accepts us despite our sin. Let me say this, uh, lastly, under this point. We are not acceptable to God because we actually become righteous. We become actually righteous because we are acceptable to God. Let me say that again. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. We are not acceptable to God because we actually become righteous. We become actually righteous because we are acceptable to God. In other words, this, we are righteous because he declared it. He has, he has, he has declared it over us. He said, you that are in Jesus are righteous as Jesus because I've declared it to be so. And it has nothing to do with what you've done. And if it did, then salvation is by works and can be lost through bad works. If it can be gained through good actions, it can be lost through bad actions. If we can merit it, then we can lose it. And that's what he's talking about when it comes to this, this word, this legal word that he introduces to us. And sometimes we assume we all understand and know. But if Peter needed to be reminded about justification then I would submit to you, church, that all of us need to be reminded about what justification means. Number one, we are justified by faith. Number two, we cannot be justified by keeping the law. We cannot be justified by keeping the law. Verse 16, if we're justified by faith in what Christ has done, we're also not justified by what we do. Law observance is not what saves. You say, I already know this. Be careful. Be careful. Because a lot of people, they, they say, I already know this, and they mull this over, and they miss something that's very important in this. Many of us grew up with a background. And even in church, and, and some churches that even preach the gospel, unintentionally preach law, law um, meriting God's grace through the law. We, we look at that and we say, uh, I know that I'm not saved by my works. The Bible says that, but let's move on. Let's get past that. Can I say this again, church? There is no getting past that. If you move past that, you miss the Christian life. If you move past that, you miss where Christian growth comes from. If you move past that, you miss what brings maturity in your Christian life. This gospel is a justifying gospel and it is a gospel that we need because the only way that any of us could be righteous is through Christ alone. Have you ever tried to be righteous? Have you ever tried to make yourself acceptable to God? We say it in different ways. 
Uh, I want to be more acceptable to God. I want to be, how about this, more pleasing to God. And so we introduce this law-keeping life. And when we do that, we put burdens on people that they cannot bear. Let me ask you a question. After you've been saved, have you kept the law? Isn't that amazing? If the Christian life was contingent on you keeping the law after you've received the Spirit of Christ, isn't it amazing that even we who have received the Spirit of Christ cannot still keep the law? In other words, God is saying to us, it is never and will never be your relationship with me will never be on your ability to keep the law. And it makes sense when we remove it from theology sometimes because that's how we really live with everybody who we really love, isn't it? Do you only love the people that you love because they do what they're supposed to do all the time? Or do you love them on the basis of a commitment and a decision that you've made? And if you, being imperfect, know how to love. And this is what Jesus said to, to fathers. If you being evil know how to give good gifts unto the, the people that you love, how much more is the Father in heaven able to give good gifts to those that ask him? How much more? We understand that the love of God is what we need. And the love of God is what motivates us in the Christian life. J.I. Packer helpfully summarizes what Paul means here. He says, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but he is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. We have, because of Jesus, been declared righteous. And it's all happened, what? By faith. By faith. In the next chapter, he's going to throw to Abraham. And I'm not going to get into chapter 3 because we're going to look at that next week. But I want to just mention this. Abraham believed God, and it was counted in him for righteousness. And Abraham believed God before the law was ever given. Abraham's faith in God preceded the law. Abraham didn't even know what God's requirements were. He didn't even know where he was going when God called him. He didn't fully understand all of what it meant to be a child of God, or to be what God was setting him up to be, the father of a great nation and who the Messiah would come and all the nations of the world would be blessed through. And Abraham was pretty messed up in his life, wasn't he? Abraham did some very embarrassing things, just like you and I. But Abraham's righteousness was not tied up in how he lived or what he did. His righteousness was fully in God. It was by faith. He believed God. And so it's not by observing the law. What does it mean? Uh, what it does mean here, that Paul died to the law as, as a way of being saved. And let me just say this. We cannot be justified by keeping the law, but this doesn't mean we no longer obey the law. This doesn't mean that we no longer obey the law. I want you to think about that, because this is often what a legalist is afraid of. A legalist will say this. 
If we tell people that salvation is by grace alone, that the Christian life and sanctification is in Christ alone, apart from our works, if we say that, then people will go out and live how they want to live. And how do we keep people under control? How do we control people? And so religion seeks to launch out and control people's lives for fear that people won't be saved if they don't live that Christian life. That's the wrong way. That's the wrong way. That's not the, that is not the motiva- motivation of the Christian life. If we're justified by faith in what Christ has done, we're also not justified by what we do. Law observance is not what saves. And Paul says, verse 19, through the law I died to the law. What, can't, what, what he doesn't mean is that we no longer obey the law of God at all. Consider all the rest of Paul's writings. Doesn't he tell Christians that they need to obey the law? Doesn't he tell the Corinthians that sexual immorality is wrong? And doesn't he base this on what Genesis says about marriage? He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He goes back to the Old Testament and he says the reason why sexual immorality is wrong is because God made sex for the marriage relationship alone. And in the marriage relationship, sex is okay. But outside the marriage relationship... All sexuality outside the marriage relationship is sinful and should therefore be avoided because it, it is a detriment to the, to, to the person who involves himself in a relationship that God never intended for them to uh, involve themselves in. So what does it mean that Paul died to the law as a way of being saved? He died to the law's condemnation. It means that we are no longer under the law's penalty. We are no longer underneath the law's penalty. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is what, church? Death. That is the penalty for sin. But guess what? Because of Christ, we are no longer under that penalty. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Jesus Christ. We were condemned already, the Bible says. We We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under the wrath of God and the penalty of our sin because all of us in the world are together without excuse. There's none of us that's done good. There's none of us that's righteous, not a single one of us. And none of us can stand before God and declare acceptability to God or enter into fellowship with God through the merit of our own life because all of our self-righteousness is filthy even the things that we've sought to do through religion. Paul understands this fully. If we're not justified by the law, but by Christ, then the law can't condemn us. If I'm feeling condemned, and I fear that God will no longer hear my prayers or care for me, I've heard people say this. Well, as a Christian, God's not going to hear your prayer because you did certain things. No, God will hear your prayer because you're His child. God's hearing of your prayer has nothing to do with your performance. God's hearing of your prayer has everything to do with who you are in Jesus. Do we remember that? Why does God hear our prayers? Not because we're clean enough in ourselves. Not because we're good enough in ourselves. God hears our prayers. Why does God hear? Why is praying effectual and fervent when it comes from a righteous man? Because I've heard even people talk about prayer like this. If people are more righteous, then their prayers are more heard. 
I mean, do you understand that? The ramifications of that? But the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So there's certain of us in here that have more access to God through our righteousness, through how well we've performed. But we, we forget that we're only righteous through Christ. And that righteousness has nothing to do with our performance. And so God doesn't hear prayers, more prayers from me than he hears from you because I'm a pastor and you're not. God doesn't hear, if we're not careful, we're going to set up another religion where you need mediation through a righteous man. Are you with me? You need mediation through a holy man. Guess what? In Jesus, we're all holy. In Jesus, we're all righteous. I'm not talking about all of us and just declaring it over everybody in this room. I'm talking about everybody who has come by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us have now become righteous, and now, therefore, our prayers are effectual. They're effectual. Not only that, our prayers become fervent, don't they? If you know that God hears you, aren't your prayers far more fervent? If you know that your praying makes a difference, don't you do it? If you're wondering, come on, are you with me? What's your prayer life going to be if you're getting down on your knees and wondering, I wonder if I'm good enough for God to hear me today. I wonder if I've behaved well enough for my prayers to be heard. I I wonder... And we go back to Old Testament and we go, well, you know, uh, God's not going to hear those that cry out to him if they, if they regard iniquity in their heart. Listen, if you're a believer, there's no iniquity in your heart. You've been saved. Your sins are washed away. You say, well, I still, in my life as a Christian, I still fail. Yes, but God doesn't hear you on the basis of your performance. He hears you on the basis of Jesus' performance. And now my prayer life becomes far more effectual when I look to God and say, God is not listening to me. He's not hearing me because I did really good. He's hearing me because he's good and I'm his child. And then I can just come to him. I don't come to him and go, did I do it right? Did I say it right? Did I bow right? Did I posture right? Did I kneel right? Am I in the right place? Am I in the right time? Am I coming in? Just talk to God. If you're a believer, you can talk to him. And he hears you. And he wants to hear you. And he hears your prayers like he hears my prayers. And all of our prayers have equal access to the Father because they're all coming through the same person, Jesus, and through the same righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Not my righteousness. That's so important. Paul wasn't coming to Peter and saying, I'm more righteous than you. He was coming to Peter and saying, we're both of the same righteousness. Only the problem is, when you're behaving hypocritically, Peter, you're thinking that God is accepting fellowship with you on the basis of how well you're keeping the law. And so therefore, you're, you're making everybody else in your life live according to that same law so that you will accept them. When we understand how Jesus accepts us, we then therefore can accept others on that same basis. How can we accept each other? Through Christ. If Christ has accepted you, who am I to deny you? If Christ is in fellowship with you, how can I not fellowship with you? Who I don't have fellowship with are those that are in darkness, and people that are in darkness are not people that don't do things like me, who don't live like me, who don't have the same 
you know, standards as I have. No, the people who are in darkness are people that don't know Jesus. And what's my job? To show the light of the gospel to them. And how can I do that? By preaching the gospel with my life and with my words. And how can I preach the gospel with my life? Hey, did you forget this? We say, I say this often because I think this is one of the most impactful verses in the book of Romans when it comes to our position with God. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were... That's exactly what Paul's saying. When Jesus accepted you, you were a sinner. And Jesus still accepts you as a sinner because you have come to him through Christ. You've come to him through his work. So God now receives fellowship with you. What does that do for us? What does that do for us? It motivates us entirely different, doesn't it? So we no longer are trying to be good enough to be acceptable. We're fully trusting in Christ's goodness to be acceptable. And now when we come, we have rest. We're not under condemnation. We're not living this debt-debtor relationship with God. Paul is saying, I died to the law as a way of being saved. I died to the law's condemnation. If we're not justified by the law, but by Christ. Listen, let me give you just kind of a practical illustration. You're in church today. So we're feeling kind of good about our Christianity. We made it. We're in church. We hope everybody here is taking notice that we're here. We definitely want to make sure the pastor sees that I'm here. We're here. And so because we're here, we're doing really good. And because of that, we'll probably have a really good week. But when we miss, we're nervous and we're thinking, God's not going to accept me. People aren't going to accept me. People are disappointed in me. I'm not, and, and so we're living our life that way. Now, what does that mean? Should I still obey the command of God not to forsake the assembling of the, ourselves together? Yes. But the motivation for that should not be that I'm afraid of what might happen to me if I don't. The motivation for that should be is that I am so in love with Jesus and his word and his church that you can't keep me away. I'm so in love with Jesus and his word and his church that it's a joy for me. It's like breathing. It's like someone saying, uh, you know, a, a husband saying, oh, well, I got to do all this stuff because I'm afraid that my wife is going to be upset with me and she's going to treat me in a, in, in a wrong way and so I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to do because I'm afraid of what might happen to me if I don't do those things. You see how the law binds children? They're afraid of their parents' condemnation. They're afraid of the penalty of what might happen if they break their parents' rules and so they, they keep the laws in fear of the, what's going to happen to them. I mean, no, that's a very immature view of that relationship. When you grow up, you start to go this. You start to go like this. My parents had these laws because they loved me. My parents had these laws because they wanted to protect me. I'm thankful at the end of the day that I had parents that loved me and wanted to protect me. And now my motivation for being in a relationship with them is not law-keeping, it's love-giving. It's that I love them because they love me. 
But I didn't understand their love through the law. I understood their love through their sacrifice. How many understood you had good parents and they sacrificed a lot so that you could be here? And now you understand their love through their sacrifice, not through all the laws. Anybody can have laws. The laws condemn us. The laws tell us that we can't keep them. The law, what is it? When, when, when I look into the, the law, what does it show me? That I'm condemned. But when I look into the face of Christ, I can see that I'm loved and that he was condemned for me, that he was, he was bruised for my transgressions. He, 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 was, he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. He took the chastisement that I should have took. He took that on himself. And by his stripes, I'm healed. So I don't live like an abused child. I live like a loved child. I live like an accepted child. I live like a child who has access to their parents and understands their love through their sacrifice. How do we understand Christ's love for us? Through his sacrifice. Hey, listen, what did Jesus say? A lot of times, will we'll, greater love hath no man than this, the man lay down his life for his friends. You know, we'll stop and we'll say, so the greatest love Jesus was trying to declare was the love that men have for their friends. Wrong. That, that verse is not saying there is no greater love than for a man to lay down his life for his friends. He was saying there's no greater love in man than this. There is no greater love in man than this. In other words, we only will lay down our lives for our friends. He says, for good men, many would dare to die. For good people, for our friends, we, we would sacrifice for people that we love. Listen, isn't it normal and natural in life, whether someone's a Christian or not, for a mother to give her life for her children? When we don't see that, don't we go, that's weird that a mother would not. For a mother to sacrifice her children for her own life is unnatural. That's strange. But when a mother gives her life for her children, we go, that's normal. I mean, we understand that, right? I mean, that's what we can do. But what did Jesus do? He didn't lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for people that hated him. He laid down his life for people who did not obey him. He laid down his life for people who were enemies. And that is the love of God that we need. Because if not, we'll just go through life loving those that love us being kind to those that are kind to us. And some people live their Christian life that way. Well, I'll be good to those, and I'm not going to forgive those that are mean. You know, I can forgive them, but I don't have to fellowship with them. You know, I, 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 can, I don't have to treat them. I don't have to, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame. You know, I got bit once, I'm not going to get bit. What kind of love is that? That's love for yourself. What about the love of Christ? The love of Christ says... I can sacrifice myself to love others because the love of Jesus never runs out. It never runs out. How did Paul die to seeking salvation by law, keeping through the law? This is what he's saying to us in the passage. Because it was as he tried to obey it that he realized he simply couldn't. Paul is saying, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And I would not have known how unable I am to keep the law except through the law. And it was by really listening to the law 
that Paul saw that he needed a Savior. You know, that's why we preach the Word of God. Because when people hear the law, they understand they can't keep the law. When you hear, thou shalt not bear false witness, do you go, oh yeah, I can do that. Thou shalt not covet. Ouch. Some of us, we come to church and we covet. We look at each other, we look at the, oh, who drove that car in? Life must be pretty good for them. If they gave as much as I could, they probably couldn't afford that car. We're afraid to let each other see our lives because coveting, envy. We look at each other and we go, oh. You know, how many of us know that none of us truly know what the burdens that one another are bearing here today? We often look at each other and we think, well, their life must be pretty good. Let me just tell you, all of us have problems in this room. Every single one of us. I do. You do. We're all bearing burdens. We're all hurting in some way. We're all struggling in many ways. There are sins that I struggle with, that you struggle with, that we're looking to get victory from, that we need help and we need accountability. We need the love of the church and one another. and We need acceptance and we need the gospel to remind us who we are in Jesus, and we need that daily. That's why the church needs each other daily from house to house. They fellowship with each other. That's why we need daily fellowship with God. That's why we need daily fellowship with other believers. That's why we need that, because it encourages us to look at ourselves, not through the lens of the law, but through the love of God and understand that God is doing a work in us. Is God working on you? Oh, He sure is. He's changing you. He's molding you. If no work is being done, then there's no Christ in you. Christ is always at work in the unseen places, in the unknown places, in the unobservable places. So that brings us to the last point today. Those that are justified will live for God. Those who are justified will live for God. Verses 16 and 19 become clear when we look closely at them. The, the same cannot really be said for verses 17 and 18, which seem to be kind of obscure to us. Perhaps the best way, in light of verses 16 and 19, to look at verses 17 and 18 is to say this. If someone who knows they are justified by faith sins, is it because justification by faith in Christ promotes sin? God forbid. Not at all. No way. But if someone who professes faith in Christ keeps on with the same sinful lifestyle they had before they professed faith in Christ... They are rebuilding the sinfulness that Christ died to destroy the penalty for. They're making no effort to change. Then it proves that this person never really grasped the gospel, but was just looking for an excuse to live in disobedience to God. Those who profess Christ, but continue to live lives of sin, prove they never really grasped the gospel. That's what all the Bible tells us. That's what all the epistles tell us. When Christ comes into our lives, He comes in and He gives us His life. And when we receive His life, our life is gone and we live His life moving forward. And what does the life of Jesus look like? Well, let me just submit this. The life of Jesus doesn't look like my past life or your past life. The life of Jesus is far different. How many look at Jesus and say, boy, I want to love like Jesus loves. I want to, 
I want to know the word like Jesus knew the word. I want to treat people like Jesus treated people. I want to have answers like Jesus had answers. I want to have kindness and patience and meekness like Jesus had meekness. In Christ, by his spirit, you can. And that is exactly what Jesus came to give to us. See, this is not salvation. Let me just be clear. God, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Save me. Okay, I'm good. Now I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to hell. Now I can live without being afraid of that the way I want to live. That is not salvation. That's not salvation. It's not grace when I say I've been given an unmerited favor from God, forgiveness from God, acceptance from God, love from God. Now I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to go live how I wanted to live before without Jesus, now having Jesus. You didn't grasp the gospel then, friend. You just didn't grasp it. You were looking for kind of like this this, uh, consequence-free life. How many have figured out that life is not consequence-free? How many figured that out? You can choose what you want to do, but how many figured out you cannot pick your consequences? You can, you can, I mean, all of us can make choices. We all have free will. We can, we can make our choices, but we cannot choose the consequences to those choices. Consequences will come. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that, that shall he also reap. You cannot live a life of sin, spreading in your life seeds of sinfulness and wickedness and lust and idolatry and, and living in that way and then come in on Sunday and pray for crop failure. God, please help all the seeds that I've sown in my life not to grow. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is putting away those seeds and receiving what the gospel gives us and going out and spreading that. The fruit of God's spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness. You can't turn over a new leaf. You can't adopt new habits and new friends and new locations. These are just short-term symptom-dealing problems. And listen, religion can help you break the addictions of alcoholism. Religion can help you break the addictions. Any kind of like outside addiction, religion can truly help you with that. They can give you new habits and new friends and new things, good things to do. But only Christ can take away your desire for it. I don't know about you, but what I want is I want the desire to go away. I don't want to love myself and my sin anymore. I want to love Jesus. I, I want to love his will. I'm going to love his word. And a lot of times we, we look at life, the Christian life, and we, this, this is why sometimes when people preach the gospel, they'll say this, if you love Jesus, raise your hand. If you want to receive Jesus, raise your hand. If you want to ask Jesus into your heart, raise your hand. Have you ever prayed and asked Jesus to, to, to come into your heart to forgive your sins? Ask anybody religious that believes in Jesus. They've done it a thousand times. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what Paul is declaring in verse number 20. I am crucified with Christ. Who I am is dead with Christ. And now, because Christ is risen, I'm risen. I have been resurrected. I have been born again. And even though before in my life, listen to Paul. Did Paul do things for God 
before he came to know Christ. We could nod our head and say yes, but the true answer is no. Nothing that Paul did before Jesus was actually for God. It was all for himself. It was just labeled for God. How many know religion labels self-living for God? I am living to get for me acceptance. I'm living to get for me righteousness. I'm living to get for me. Paul was living this religious life of works really for himself. Listen to his resume. Who was greater in the Jewish sect? Who was greater? I mean, I was the greatest of the great. I mean, I did the most, but I hated the church and I persecuted the church and I hurt people and I did all of this for God. Did he really do it for God? Is that what God wanted him to do? No way. And that's what Jesus showed up to tell Paul. Paul, you're doing all this for yourself. This isn't for me. This isn't my life. This isn't what I died for. You don't even know me, Paul. See, a lot of religious people think they know God and they're doing things for God, but they don't even know God. And until Jesus Christ shows up in your life and he comes along that road, listen, and shows you your life apart from him and how depraved it is and how destitute it is and how dead it is, You can't receive what he has for you because you don't understand it and you don't grasp it. And what God is trying to do is not make it more complicated. He's trying to make it easier. Religion makes the gospel complicated. But what Jesus came to do is simple. He said, listen, you deserve to die. You sinned. We all know that we've sinned. If you're not ready, listen, if you are not ready to admit if you don't see it in your own life, if you don't see how sinful you are, then let me say this, you're not ready to receive Christ. Don't pray a prayer. Don't, 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 don't do it. You're not ready to receive Christ. You're not going to get false hope through a prayer. It's not going to give you the hope that you need. It's not going to give you the life that you need. Only Christ can change your life. And if you don't think your life needs any changing, then you're not ready for the gospel. I pray that you will be. I pray that God will help you to see that. I pray that God will move on your heart and show you how much you need him. But listen, you're not going to pray a prayer and go, I'm done. I don't need the gospel anymore. No, we're not done. We're never done. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Hmm. I don't live by the works of the Son of God. I live by the faith of the Son of God. The just shall live by faith. You know how we grow? We trust God. That's how we grow. We trust God. Anybody reading the Bible like me this week and you go, I don't really understand all of that. Maybe it's just me. Anybody, anybody like me? Read, like, what? what? Or how about this? Even worse, you understand it and you go, I don't really see myself like that. That's what he says I am, but I, boy, that's not what I, I mean, I could try. And you know what we do? We go out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try harder. How many have tried harder and it didn't work?
The try-harder Christian life is a hamster wheel Christian life. You, you push and push and push, but you get nowhere. You actually don't grow. You actually think that you're growing, but you're not growing. You're actually not going anywhere. The faith-filled Christian life is a life of growth and change. Because I'm trusting God. Is God going to lead me to new places? Is God going to lead me to new truths? Is God going to show me new ways? Is he going to change the way I live my life? Is he going to change? In five years, am I going to look at the person in the mirror? Listen, some of us, we've been saved a number of years, and we think, now I've arrived. Nothing's going to change from here on out. Those kind of people scare me. Oh, I haven't changed in 20 years. Well, maybe if you read the Bible, you start changing. It's a scary place when we get to the place where we won't change anymore. Are there things in your life that need to be made more like Jesus' life? Is the life that you're living now lived by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? When we receive the gospel by faith, we are born again to simply live for Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Think about that. That's the last point on the page there. When we receive the gospel by faith, we are born again to simply live for Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. This is the declaration of the Christian life from the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter and to the church at Galatia and say, hey, listen, you want to know what the Christian life is? It's this. You're not alive anymore. You were crucified with Christ. It's not your way anymore. It's Christ's way. The law itself showed me that I could not ever make myself acceptable through it, so I stopped living to it. I died to it as my Savior. Though I obeyed God before, it was simply to get something from Him. It was for my own sake. Now I obey Him simply for Him. I now live for Him. Well, this helps us to make sense and understand the life-changing implications of the verse, don't they? There's an apparent tension in these two verses. Paul says, I no longer live, and then he says, the life I live. But this tension describes the way we should see our lives as Christians. In verse 20, on its own, it would suggest that we just sit back and let Christ give us the power to live rightly. But verse 21 alone would have me do it all together by ourselves. Look at verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. But notice together. It's a restatement. Verse 20 is a restatement of verse 14. We need to live in our lives in line with the truth of the gospel. Now that Christ's life is my life, Christ's past is my past, I am in Christ, verse 17, which means that I am as free from condemnation before God as if I had already died and been judged and as if I had paid the debt myself and I am loved by God as if I had lived the life that Christ lived. So it is not me that lives, but Christ. It's a triumphant reminder that though we ourselves are sinners in Jesus, we are righteous, and then he follows up with verse 21. You still with me? Look at the Bible. Now when I live my life, and now when I make my choices and do my work, I do so remembering who I am by faith in Christ who loved me so much. That inner dynamic for loving, living the Christian life is right here. Only when I see myself as completely loved and holy in Christ will I have the power to repent with joy 
to conquer my fears and obey the one who did this all for me. It's worth remembering that Paul is still speaking to Peter. It's worth remembering that. Because a lot of times we divorce that verse from its context just to say, because we love verse 20 so much that we forget what he's saying and who he's saying it to. He finishes by reminding Peter that the Christian life is about living in line with the gospel. Notice that was the beginning of the the passage, verse 14. When I saw that they were not living in line with the gospel, I said to them. This is what was the whole point of the correction. After all, if at any point, in any way, righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing, verse 21. Christ will do everything for you or nothing. Christ will do everything for you or nothing. It's all Christ or it's nothing. You cannot take part of the gospel and part of religion and put them together. You cannot add to the gospel. Anything out of the gospel makes it no gospel. Imagine that your house were burning down, but your whole family had escaped. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into that house and I died. What a tragic, pointless waste of life. Why run into a burning house where there's nobody to save? If your family's already safe, I'm not showing you any great heroic act by running into the burning house and dying for you. But now imagine that your house was on fire and one of your children was still in there. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into the flames and saved your child, but I died myself, you would think, look how much that man loved me. If we could save ourselves, Christ's death is pointless and means nothing. But when we realize that we could not save ourselves, Christ's death means everything to us. And we will spend the life that he gives us in joyful service of him, bringing our whole lives into line with the gospel. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.